Welcome to the Christian Education Podcast. My name is Paul Matthews, and today I'm bringing you a great discussion I had with Ken Dickens. Ken is a stalwart of the Christian education scene in Australia, and he brings a wealth of insight and knowledge to our conversation today. He shares some insights about his work within Christian education over the last decades, as well as providing a global view of how Christian ed has developed over the last 60 years or so. Now, before we get to that discussion, let me get to a few bits of admin. Firstly, sorry for not posting in a while. It's been a while since I've shared a discussion. Let me give you two great reasons as to why I've been posting a little less frequently. Firstly, my wife and I had our third son, Phineas Richard Johannes Matthews. He's healthy and well, and we're loving being a family of five, with a three-year-old, a one-and-a-half-year-old, and now a newborn. Secondly, many of you know I'm building my teacher aid. It's an AI software for teachers. I'm building it actually with Jacob Skirker, who you may remember from our ChatGPT episode. And that's taking a fair old chunk of time too. I want to warmly invite you, if you work in Christian education, I want to invite you to apply for the pilot. It starts in October and we want to work with as many Christian schools as we can. See, at my teacher aid, we envisage a future where teachers are able to leverage AI to complete their low-level administrative duties so that they can actually have more time to think, more time to reflect, more time to pray and to care. Why don't we let AI do what it can do so teachers are then free to do what only they can do? You can apply for the pilot at myteacheraid.com. We would love to partner with you with our AI solution. Now, without any further ado, here is the conversation with Ken. I hope you enjoy it. Well, Ken Dickens, welcome to the Christian Education Podcast. Pleasure, Paul. I'm really excited to be talking with you today. You're someone who I've had my eye on for quite some time. And when your name came up as having written a book review for the Christian Teachers Journal, I thought, I've got to speak to Ken. Uh, Mm. Tell me this. You've got a, a long and rich history in Christian education. We'll talk about that in a moment. But what are you doing with yourself these days? I'm... I'm basically retired, but um, it's it's hard to walk away from a ministry that you've had for uh, quite a while. So I'm still involved in the National Institute um, as an adjunct lecturer. Um, so I take a class every semester online. Um, I, I do a little bit of writing and reviewing for other people and um, also have a role in the governance for um, the National Institute. Uh, as well as that, sort of having 11 grandkids and um, pretty heavy involvement in church, I find myself pretty busy most of the time. There is a certain species of person out there that when they're given a bit of time off, they just do a whole heck of a lot of work. Yeah. And so that that sounds like you. (laughs) Yeah. I I imagine so. Now – Let's do a, a bit of sort of non-linear storytelling. So we've we've started at the end. We've started mm. where you are now. Mm. But let's wind back the clock a tad here, Ken. Can you tell us about your journey through Christian education? It's obviously shaped you in a big way, and in many ways you've shaped it as well. Can you tell us more about your journey in Christian ed? Yeah, I started like a lot of people. Um, I, I had my first 15 years of teaching uh, in state schools um, in the western suburbs of Sydney, um, and that's where I felt I belonged. I, I had a really strong sense of mission in those schools I taught at um, and and had lots of um, 
wonderful opportunities in, in evangelism with um, looking after uh, special religious instruction uh, and also having a, a lunchtime Christian group. Um, my brother, older brother, had his kids going to Christian school and I I gave him a hard time, um, you know, uh, what do you need that, you know, you're closeting your kids away, you're sheltering them, you're all the normal stuff that people who don't know what they're talking about say. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, look, a couple of things coalesced together. Um, firstly, I, I even though I had great opportunities in the public school, that there was a sense in which the gospel really wasn't shaping the key task that I had as a as an educator. That is education itself. Um, that was just something I did so I had an opportunity to be evangelistic um, in the school setting. Um, so that was a challenge to me uh, and I was wrestling with that. Um, there's also a kind of, I think, God-given restlessness that both my wife and I experienced that maybe God was calling us into something else. Um, we didn't know what that was, um, but... One of the things that came up on the radar was possibly getting involved in Christian education. Um, and and the, the final thing was that my eldest child um, was about to start school. So um, as we started to think about possibilities where God might have been leading us uh, and then sort of thinking towards Christian schooling just as a a ministry opportunity more than anything else, I then started to think as a parent, where do I want my child and my subsequent children to be educated? And um, over that sort of looking for a job and getting interviewed and reading and thinking, that's where I wanted my child to go. That's where I wanted my son to be. And so we actually started Christian education together Um and uh, he was in kindergarten. I was the principal. Um, he uh, he's not left Christian <laughs> education. He's now teaching himself uh, in a in a Christian school um, at the age of forty three. Um, so it was a long time ago that we started the journey together, and he's still going in it. Um, so 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 from being a, a teacher in a public school, I became the principal of a Christian school, a small K-6 Christian school. Um, and, you know, that was reasonably manageable, um, but it grew into a high school, then into a senior high school. Then we had an extra campus. And, and the thing just grew around me, despite me. Um, I had this overwhelming sense that I'm really not too sure what I'm doing, um, but God is blessing this place and it's growing. And, um for a lot of the time, I felt like an imposter, to tell you the truth. You know, um, I felt I'm not really qualified to be a principal, let alone a principal of Christian school. Um, but something really wonderful happened. Um, the National Institute for Christian Education started to get off the ground. It didn't have accreditation or anything, but it started to be offering courses. Uh, this is exactly what I need. I need to be studying um, what it means to be a Christian educator. So um, I started studying. I didn't have time um, as, as a busy 
principal of a school who didn't know what he was doing. Um, but it actually energised me as I was studying and trying to fit a study in with all the other stuff I had to do. And I had pretty heavy involvement in churches where I was. Um, so um, but it actually set me on fire. Um, I got excited about the whole philosophical and theological rationale of Christian schooling, particularly um, the notion that all of life belonged to Christ. And, and he was saying, it's all mine, you know. Um, I, I'm not just interested in the spiritual stuff. I, all of life, all of the creation belongs to me, uh, including education. That really excited me. Uh, and so I eventually became a senior lecturer with the National Institute um, then, uh, after some time, I became the principal of the National Institute. And then, um, while I was principal, I, I became the CEO of Christian Education National, which is the parent body of the National Institute. Uh, and there's a very symbiotic relationship between the schools association network and the tertiary institute that was training teachers how to teach Christianly at a postgraduate level. Um, now, that that model hasn't continued, and it's an unsustainable model having a principal of the tertiary institution and a CEO of the schools association. But for a time, with really good people around me, because I couldn't, I couldn't do both jobs, um, it, it was important to uh, galvanise that you know, symbiotic relationship between the, the school body and the tertiary body. So, um, yeah, so that brings us to where we started, uh, that having done that um, for about 17 or so years, um, I'm now retired and just keeping my hand in and doing other things. Well, that is an amazing tale, Ken, a really interesting story of God's faithfulness to you and, and your faithfulness to Christian education. So I'm really, really excited to hear those sorts of stories. That puts uh, a real fire in my belly as a young bloke in Christian education to see people who have given it a red-hot crack. I um, I really do sympathise with the discontentedness you talked about feeling. We know it says in the Scripture, the, the Apostle says that godliness with contentment is great gain. But there is sometimes you can feel the Spirit is saying, uh, I actually don't want you to be content with this. I, it would actually be a real mistake if you were to get comfy here. So God God just puts a rock in the sole of your shoe, um, you know, and, and, and you go, wow, this ain't feeling right. And that's one of the things that moved me to Christian education as well, and I couldn't be more thankful that God did that. I can't believe you were actually the CEO of CEN and the principal of the National Institute at the same time. So I, I know both the women in those roles at the moment, and they are both flat out. They are both about as busy as it's possible to be, and you were doing both those jobs. How, how did you manage that, Ken? Well, um, really, um, it, was having, it was having those sort of oversights, but I had a guy alongside me um, who was the operations manager for CN, and so a lot of the stuff that Michelle would be doing, he was doing. Um, with me and for me. And, and in the Institute, I had a guy called Jeff Beach who was the academic dean and he was really looking after the functioning. So it, it was a matter of just trying to be across both both roles, knowing that 
there were there were other people who had your back and who were doing the hard yards. So I think it worked. I'm really grateful that it did. And we're obviously beneficiaries of those two systems now at the moment. Now, you are reviewing a book in the August edition of the Christian Teachers Journal. The book is by a bloke called John Hull, and it's called Education for Hope. Could you give us a brief pricey, a quick overview of this volume from John Hull? Yeah. Well, it's it's an interesting book because it's 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 historical um, in a sense that he he takes us through the beginnings of Christian education or ref, reformed Christian education or neo Calvinistic uh, Christian schooling in Canada. Um, and there's a lot of historical details and people and events and publications. But as well as a, a sort of a survey of the the what took place and how it developed, there's a lot of discussion about the philosophy of Christian education and the the debates that took place and the clarification of of um, vision uh, and working out and, and, and sort of a lot of discussion about how did we work out in Canada coming a lot of people from, you know, reform churches? How do we work out how to do education? How do we work out how to do schooling? So there's a lot of philosophical discussion, but very practical. And then the third component of the book, which I found fascinating and I resonated with strongly, was what he refers to as a personal memoir because he, he actually takes it through his own experience um, coming from a, a small um, town in, in, in the States um, and coming from a, a German Calvinistic background to being really enamoured with reformational philosophy after his time at Dort uh, University was college then and then going to the Institute of Christian Studies in, in Toronto, Canada, and really getting involved in the whole reformational philosophy and worldview world, um, and then um, finding himself um, as a teacher, but with all that kind of background behind him, um, and then later on as a teacher educator, um, so he goes through that kind of personal memoir, um, and yeah, he. Um, I, I think he's he's kind of um, experiencing Christian school in, in many ways. To some extent, I guess mirrors my own, and, and he's he's about my age, a bit older, I think. But he's at a similar uh, place in life where he's sort of looking back at. At not only his experience in Christian schooling in Canada, but the development of of, of reformed Christian schools in that place. And and one of the things I found was there's sort of remarkable similarities with um, with us and them, um, which which is very encouraging. The Christian Education Podcast is brought to you by Teaching in Tassie. At Christian Education National Schools in Tassie, you can make a difference. You have the freedom to express your faith and values, of course, with Jesus right at the centre. Tasmania's beautiful environment has space to breathe. We have amazing food and wine, wilderness to explore, 
there's an adventure right on your doorstep. There are endless opportunities. I've got to tell you, it's almost perfect. To sign up or learn more, visit teachingintassie.com.au and you'll be the first to know when there's a career available. Who knows? It may just have your name on it. Let's get back to the discussion. One of the reasons that would be, and you talk about this in your review, is that they are germinating really from the same Dutch reform seeds, aren't they? Post-World War II, in the 50s and 60s, there's a lot of Dutch people and they're landing in places like uh, South Africa or they're landing in places like Canada or Australia. So really, it was a very similar cohort of people who believed certain things about the scriptures, certain things about Christ, certain things about the world. And they went and actually started these movements in places like Canada and Australia. And in some ways, Canada and Australia have been walking this journey together as we figure out Christian Ed. And that's what you talk about in your book review. Let me ask you a question before we press into that further. Now, this might be a little niche for some of our listeners, but I'm going to proceed with some caution anyway. I'm a Calvinist. I'm a card-carrying Calvinist. I believe in a big God, a big Christ, a God who's sovereign over all things. And that's actually what the founders of our schools believed too. That's what the Dutchies who came over to Canada and to Australia, that's what they believed. And it's quite plain that that's what they believed. My question for you, Ken, is should we still be deliberate in our use of language like reformed, uh, Calvinistic, neo-Calvinistic, should we still be using those terminologies? Our teachers are quite an ecumenical lot. Some CEN schools would also have your Seventh-day Adventists or even Catholics in them as well. My question is, should we be continuing to use that terminology that was obviously so potent, at least the philosophy behind the terminology, in the foundation of our schools? Hmm. Uh, look, it's a very good question, and I think um, a lot of people make a, 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 a strong distinction uh, between the terminology of reformed, which tends to be more theological and, if you like, Calvinistic, and reformational, which um, has a more philosophical flavour. Now, there is obviously a connection between uh you know, what you refer to as big God, big Christ, all of life under the lordship and sovereignty of, of God, um, playing out in in the way we look at the world and the way we function in the world. So from my point of view, um, my reform theology and my commitment to the sovereignty of God in all things keeps playing into my understanding of the world and education and therefore I'm happy to call myself reformed and reformational. In other words, theologically reformed and reformation, reformational philosophically. Um, however, I think, I think we, 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 we need to be careful not to put stumbling blocks in people's way by using terms that they don't identify with and possibly don't fully understand. So I, I think we need to use phrases like, um, you know, the lordship of Christ over all creation. Um, and I've found in the diversity um, that there is in Christian schoolings in Australia that 
people, when they get the vision of um, a big Christ sovereign over all creation, every aspect of life, whether they're, you know, nominally reformed, Pentecostal, evangelical, whatever, people, whatever their background is, who, who have a love for, for, for the Lord, just warm to the idea that that the whole of life, you know, the whole box and dice belongs to him. Um, and uh, that's the kind of emphasis that we want to have. And I think we can we can maintain that in a uh, ecumenical kind of context. That's a really good point. And perhaps without the nomenclature, it would be far easier for people to swallow. And you're right, people are quite reflect, refreshed by it, Ken, because many people go through life and whether or not it squares away with their theology, what they really believe, and they live this out in the way that they think and the way that they would react to world events, what they actually believe is that uh, the devil is going to come and beat us all up and take our lunch money and we're going to go home hat in hand with nothing to show for our efforts. And when you're actually able to present uh, a Christ who has put the the powers and principalities to open shame on the cross, who who lives and reigns. That's the sort of thing that does actually put steel in your spine, and you then walk into the you walk into the classroom every single day, and you and you go, I'm actually we're we're doing this. We're 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 growing the kingdom. We're teaching all nations. This is a part of the Great Commission. We will be successful in that commission. So I, I think that's a great nuance from you that we keep all the same ideas. We express them creatively and we continue to have though that same philosophical and theological engine room driving driving our schools now let's let's think quickly here you were talking about the canadian uh, reform schools we've had uh, schools out of that same reformational worldview here in australia and that relationship we often see if you go to an itech for example um the sort of every four years the big annual oh the big annual the big national conference there'll be a bunch of canadians around the place and a bunch of aussies will also go out to northern america could you so they're quite similar to us in some ways the canadians could you perhaps just for a moment though pass out some differences are there ways that christianity uh, and christian education has developed in canada that might be a slightly different flavor to the way that it's unfolded here in australia yeah yeah, look, I, I think I think there are some some differences. I mean, we've we've talked about the some of the similarities, but um, so before I look at, talk about the differences, some of the similarities are that both of us started with an emphasis on curriculum. Um, we both had this strong worldview terminology. Um, we both struggle with what are the real goals of Christian schooling? Is it is it um, to give students a worldview or is it to make them disciples in all of life or is it to make them agents of cultural transformation? Um, so those kind of debates and discussions have been very similar in, in, in our experiences. Uh, I said we started with curriculum. They did too. Uh, they then realised that, hey, you can't have Christian curriculum without Christian pedagogy. And so we're now thinking more and more about pedagogy. And both 
organisations had their own degree of conflicts um, that sharpened them, that that was sad at times, but sharpened them. And there was also key publications in both contexts and synergy with other people and other organisations. In Australia, um, I think the Canadian situation, if you went to uh, Canadians, uh, Christian schools of our kite, you would find much more um, Dutch cultural flavour than there is in, in, in a lot of our schools in Australia. Now, I know you come from the, the you know, the uh, Calvin, which is one of the, the Dutchy kind of schools, but I'm sure <laughs> that's, that's broadened out at the moment. But many, many schools around Australia um, would have little cultural sort of um, attachment to anything that came out of the Dutch Reformed Church. Um, but in Canada, it's, I, my sense is it's, it's remained stronger and it's, it's always has been stronger. Um, Australia, it's interesting when we think about the immigrants uh, coming from Canada post, uh, coming from the Netherlands after the first, uh, Second World War, um, a lot of them came without the whole articulated philosophy um, of Christian education. They came simply understanding that they had the opportunity in Holland to send their kids to Christian schools. Um, and when they came to Australia or, or Canada, they looked for the schools that they could rightly, um, you know, follow their responsibility to raise their kids as Christians in, in the day-to-day education of their kids. Um, and, and the choices they had were either church-controlled schools that were beyond their means anyway, or state-controlled schools. And so that's why in Australia they they coined the, the phrase parent control. It wasn't it wasn't ever set up that parents would be telling teachers what to do. It was that as opposed to church control or state control, we, we wanted parent control schools because God has given us, the parents, responsibility to raise our kids. Um, so that's the way it was. Um, the, the, the other So what happened in Australia is these people came out. They just said, we want these schools, and, and they sacrificed and they, they worked hard to do it. But when they started to articulate the philosophy and, and, and bringing the theology that, that was so rich and deep coming out of, out of the Reformation to the task of education, they looked to other people other evangelicals that were, were, were thoughtful and, and grounded in the Bible to help them articulate it. And, and that's quite, I think, distinctively Australian. That's why we've started being very diverse very early on in the piece of Christian schooling in Australia. And, and that's remained the case, um, which I think I think is, is a great thing. Um, and the other, the other difference is that um, Australia, um, I think, is unique in the world in Christian schooling where a, a schooling uh, network, in this case Christian Education National, actually owns a tertiary institution called the National Institute of Christian Education. In Canada, um, they had far more access to reformational, reformed tertiary institutions but none of them were 
directly connected with the school movement. Um, they they were very influential. Um, they, they they trained the people, but they weren't structurally connected like we have. So that has its challenges and also its 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 great blessings. So, yeah. Fantastic. Well, that's a that's a great examination of the two different countries and how Christian education has developed over the last little while there. Let's get to this book that you've reviewed for us here. Education for Hope by John Hull. As you said, he's working out of a Canadian context, but by God's grace, many of the similarities will actually mean that the lessons that we find in this book by John will be relevant to us as Christian educators here in Australia. So I was wondering if you could just skim all the good stuff off the top, maybe give us a, a couple of points that you think Christian educators would really benefit from from this book. Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, it's, it's, it's important to think about where you've come from. And I think looking at where someone else has come from strangely helps you think about where you've come from or the movement that you find yourself in comes from. So I think it's important for everyone to think about their, their history. Um, the second thing is, and, and, and John Hull is particularly strong on this, and I, I first heard of John Hull in, a, in an article he wrote um, which was called um, There's Christian Education and Not Quite or something like that. And he, he sort of differentiates between Christian education and Christians educating. And he says most of the time when we're doing Christian edu- trying to do Christian schooling, it's Christians, good-hearted, Bible-believing, faithful Christians who are doing education rather than Christians who are doing Christian education. So, so one of the, the, the things that come out again and again in his book is not to underestimate the difficulty in in doing authentic Christian schooling and and not to underestimate the the inherent strength that that we have imbibed throughout our whole experience the the strength of the secular paradigm of education you know it, it is it is so strong and, and he talks about all sorts of innovations, be it Christian education or otherwise, that struggle against the overriding paradigm of what education is and what it's for. Um, the, the other thing is, and John Hull himself, his particular uh, academic field is um, curriculum theory, and I, I think he's got a lot to say about this, but one of the one of the lessons we can learn from the book and his thinking is not to think that a model of curriculum development is ever neutral. Uh, and he talks about um, that all education now in sort of developed countries is is of a progressive time type. But he talks about the different types of progressive education, but he said the one that comes back time and time again to be the the thing that shapes education in the Western world is the what he calls the technical efficiency model. In other words, 
you know, it's working out the most efficient way and getting the techniques the most efficient way to get results from kids in education. Uh, now, he doesn't use the term, but the term is used by another guy called um, Bert Biesta. He uses the term balloonification, but without using the term, Hull is saying the same stuff, that, that if we just on about how do kids learn, and it's all about learning, and never think about what they're learning or why they're learning or for what purpose and what end, uh, then that's not really Christian education. Um, so that's a really important thing because the, the emphasis today is, well, you know, how do you assess how kids are learning, which is great. It's very important. But if we're not thinking about what they're learning and why they're learning, it's it's insufficient. Um, the other thing is that I think he talks about falling into the trap of uh, saying, you know, we want Christian schools because we want to raise the standards or we want Christian schools because we want quality education. Now, of course, everyone wants to raise standards and everyone wants quality education. But if that's your goal, not Christian education. You know, it, it's it's education that centres around Christ and his lordship of the whole world and living in his world for him um, and, and raising our kids to understand that, to imagine that, to want that, to to practice that in schooling. So um, the, the other thing, uh, and there's two other things that I think is important, that it's important that we need to keep going beyond slogans. And uh, this relates a little bit to the, the discussion we had earlier about terminology. Um, you know, it's easy just to throw up slogans all the time, Christ-centred, you know, biblically grounded, and we sort of just throw these slogans out there and imagine that, that that's the reality <laughs> rather than constantly <laughs> clarifying, constantly critiquing, constantly wrestling in community about what do these things mean? You know, what does it mean to be Christ-centred? Are we really Christ-centred? How can we be biblically grounded? I mean, Rod Thompson's done a lot of work on saying that we're biblically grounded, but how much does the Bible really impact what we do and how does it impact what we do and what part of the Scripture impacts what we do, etc. cetera. Um, and the final thing is that the other subheading of his book is a course correction. And um, I think Hull is saying this has been my life's journey through Christian education and, and we've been talking about cultural transformation, we've been talking about discipleship. Are those things really possible for a Christian school to have as its aim? Um, should we be more modest in our uh, attempt to saying this is what we're doing? And so that's why he's come down to this phrase, education for hope, um, that we need to, and I think he uses the term, know the story and live the story. Um, so know the story of the Bible, know the story of the, the sovereignty of Christ in all things, and actually helping the kids to start living that story um, and giving them a hope. 
Now, I think um, the other aspect to that is that that's relevant. Um, I'm reading a book at the moment. Um, in fact, a lot of the stuff I've been reading, and this seems to happen to me, and I think this is what God does to me, I, 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 I keep reading stuff that's about similar themes. And so my reading lately, um, without being all that intentional, has been on hope. Um, and I, I, the one I'm reading at the moment talks about the absolute absence of hope in our in our world today, um, and and the different ways that people are trying to attempt to rectify that, but but that the only ground for hope really is the gospel. But as we become more and more post-Christian, if you like. Um, there's no ground for hope, and, and there's actually no content for hope. It, it's just a vague, wishful thinking that maybe things will get better. Um, so being really relevant in today is that Christian schools ought to be able to offer kids hope that is not a, a weak hope. It's not a wishy-washy hope. It's a really strong hope, yes, that's going to involve suffering, it's going to involve sacrifice, but it's going to involve real humanity and the real issues of the world, um, but the world that belongs to God and has been redeemed and is being redeemed and will be redeemed through the cross of Christ. Um, and so that basis of hope is what drives John Hull's book and, you know, certainly what lights my fire in Christian education. I think we would do really well to focus on hope. If you think of many of the common problems, many of the maladies that we're seeing in young people, and of course we're seeing actually, sadly, one of the most mentally ill generations coming through our schools right now, it could be well attributed to a deficit of hope, couldn't it? Because whether whether you want to talk about uh, a culture of drugs and alcohol, uh, whether you want to talk about rebellion coming out through uh, vaping or um, sexual promiscuity, whether you want to talk about the LGBT, uh, often what it's coming from is a place where there's a deficit of hope and extreme dissatisfaction with life, and there's no serious antidote to that. So what do you do? You, you clutch at straws. You and what you do then is you actually grasp a hold of things that are in reality going to ground you down to a powder. They they are they are not the sort of uh, living hope, for example, that Peter who, interestingly enough, um, many of people have called him the apostle of hope, uh, and he and he had a great hope himself despite adversity, and we have a great gospel that gives students every reason for hope. So that's, I mean, that comes back to the language that many Christian educators have been talking about when it comes to telling a better story. So we, we can all agree that things have gone pretty sideways, but we have a really unique chance to share a better story when it comes to what students can actually hope for because we can sit back and lament the fact that the youth are spraying off into so many directions that we find um, to be not leading to human flourishing, but really perhaps they're just looking to be hopeful themselves. So let's let, let me ask you this before we wrap up. I've got two questions for you. The first one is this. You, you talk about the controversies, uh, the arguments, that have taken place in Christian education over the last 60 years in Australia and Canada. As you look forward, Ken, 
as you look into the future, what do you see that you think Christian education uh, is going to have to have a big group discussion about soon? I, I'm reminded of this quote, so just just to let you off the hook a little bit, there was a Yogi Berra quote, um, uh, and I've completely blanked on the quote, so I'm not going to go with Yogi Berra. But um, all our listeners can be assured that there's a funny quote from Yogi Berra about predicting the future out there somewhere. But all that to say, it's very tricky. We have no crystal ball, but you have a wealth of experience in Christian education and you can read the scene pretty well. You can understand the the run of the green. So where do you think we are going to have to actually sharpen our intellectual tools over the next 60 years? Yeah. Yeah, so like, like I think it's it's twofold. It's, it's sharpening, sharpening our intellectual tools, um, but also being prepared to... Um, walk alongside people who we might not necessarily completely agree with in all things. And so I think um, I think uh, Francis Schaeffer used the term of co-belligerence. And I think, um, you know, people of Christian faith, uh, no matter what their flavour at the moment in a sense, there's there's a growing solidarity, I think, that if we're going to name the name of Christ, we're going to be on the nose um, to people of the world. Um, and so, you know, we we want to stand alongside the the Roman Catholic um, people who had the um, the hospital in the ACT and wanted to stand on their principles of the sanctity of life. And and had the um, the government ride roughshod over them, you know. Um, we so so I think there's a sense in which we need to be talking to each other, uh, and in in one sense put our differences aside for particular issues without ever diluting what we regard as being absolutely fundamental to the faith. So. Um, so I think we've got to do that, but also we've got to, and this is, this is going to sound in some sense defeatist, but I think it's important. We've got, to, we've got to accept the fact that there may come a day when having Christian schools is, is going to be only um, able to be achieved by a compromise that is too far. And and what are we going to do then? I mean, God hasn't said in his word, you must set up Christian schools. But he has said to parents, it is your responsibility as Christian parents to raise your kids for me. And so we're possibly going to have to think creatively, um, how can we do that? In a in a context that is that is hostile, and if we can't do it in the current situation of the schools we have, how else can we do it? Um, rather than saying the only way to do it is the way we're doing it at the moment. So, talking together, struggling together, um, and being wise together. I, I think there's a really fine line between caving in and compromising and being foolishly 
sticking your head above the parapet, if you if you understand what I mean. Um, so there needs to be – we need to be, you know, as, as gentle as doves and as wise as serpents in this context and help each other to be so. That was the exact scripture that I was thinking about. Uh, once we get off air, I'll tell you an interesting story about a co-belligerent I, uh, I had at a meeting that I recently attended. But uh, I want to I just echo what you said about being creative in the way that we do Christian education. Maybe we don't have to change anything yet, but you actually want to think about how you, how you could change things when you don't have the fire on the toes. Because uh, there's an old quote from a pastor who talks about, you know, I, uh, 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 he's asking a Christian, are you a pacifist? Are you not? Um, and these are good questions to figure out before you get punched in the face. You know, you, you actually want to have your theology of that sorted out before someone takes a swing at you because when you've just been punched in the face, that's a bad time to do a Bible study. And Right? So if we're going to think about, all right, what does it mean if we were to lose government funding, if we were going to continue to boldly claim the name of Christ and apply the Lordship of Christ to areas of humanity which we think matter to Christ? We, we need to do that hard thinking now while we haven't just been punched in the mouth because, again, it, when you get your funding yanked, it's a bad time to do a Bible study. So I, I, I wholeheartedly echo that, Ken, and I think that's a very prudent encouragement. Before we wrap up, you were just speaking to me before we hit record of a really interesting project that you're currently working on. You've got a few things up in the air at the moment, but I'm, of course, referring to your writing. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about that. Yeah. Um, look, a lot of people have written very good evangelistic tracks and, and booklets and books. Um, I, I've just had on my mind and heart for a while um, just to add to those things um, and just thinking about how people respond to the gospel, people who maybe people who aren't hostile to the gospel enough to send their kids to Christian schools and there are a lot of them um, who possibly wouldn't ever attend a church but would be happy to send their kids to a Christian school. I'd really love to have a, a small book that you could give those people um, that was very accessible, not Christian jargon, not in-house language, um, and so I, I've had this idea of, of writing this small evangelistic booklet um, called Four Questions um, That You Should Consider Before Dismissing Christianity. And, and the four questions are, um, is it good? Uh, I'd normally start with, is it true? But in, in, in our context, I think we've got to start with, is something attractive? Uh, do we warm to something? And uh, can we see uh, the gospel as something that is intrinsically good and positive and flourishing and 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 just good? Um, secondly, does it work? I think we're very pragmatic people. We want to know whether something's going to work. Um, we, we might think, yes, a lovely story, but it's just a story and it really is not going to cut it in the real world. So does it work? And then the question, which is really the crucial question, but I'm not asking it first, is it true? Uh, and 
which really means is it credible? Is it plausible? Uh, is there enough evidence to take this this message seriously? And then the last question is, what's it cost? So I'm pitching it as if this is a decision that people are making, you know, about anything. Is it good? Does it work? Is it true? Is it is it is it going to do what it says it does? Um, but what's it cost? And obviously, um, the answer to that that I'll elaborate on is nothing and everything. So, uh, yeah, look, I, I, I took myself away with my wife a month or so ago and got stuck into it. But um, when when you come back home, other things get in the way. So I really need to get get back to it. So. I know exactly how you feel, and that has sufficiently whet my appetite for me to be uh, sending you the odd email every couple of weeks saying, "Hey, mate, have you had any more time to work on that book yet?" Because I, uh, I, I really, I really am eager for that because many people don't realise it. Many people, in fact, uh, become part of a state school community because they say, "I want to reach people with the gospel." What those people actually—they've missed a trick there. Because you have got, God is just lobbing you softballs continually in the Christian school. Not only do you have a whole stack of non-Christian families, non-Christian students and parents, but what you have is you've got the permission because they know they're at a Christian school. They've signed on to the documents to say we'll be discussing these things. So you get absolute sitters, and I think it is a fantastic high-value proposition for the mission-minded Christian to be a part of a Christian school community. Uh, Now, Ken, I feel like we could talk all night. Uh, However, we will wrap it up there. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise, not only tonight but to Christian education as a whole, and I wish you all the best and God's richest blessings for all your future endeavours. Yeah, and let me say it warms my heart and encourages me greatly to see young bucks like yourself taking up the uh, the challenge and, uh, and, and the baton and running with it. They're good on you.